Hello and welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I am Carl Christensen. I'm joined tonight by Matt. And uh, for our longtime listeners, we have a returning guest, uh, Mick, Mick McGurr, um, lawyer uh, and um, basketball no, actually far better at golf than basketball. Um, <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> no, Mick, Mick McGurr is our, our legal expert that came on, what, Mick, I think about three years ago that you joined us and talked us through some licensing and, and things like that tonight. You're going to come back and going to talk us through all variety of law. So thanks for coming back, Mick. Happy to be here. So quick, uh, quick bio for you, Mick. Once again, you graduated... Uh, from Georgetown with your, uh, is it JD, Juris Doctorate, right? And you've been, you're uh, past the bar in Arizona, so your your law office is in Arizona. It's Focus, P-H-O-C-U-S, right? Focus Law. And how long have you been doing that now? Um, Been in Arizona since 2011, practiced since about then, Um, started Focus Law in... Um, it's been five and a half years. Awesome. So um, Mick has a lot of legal expertise for us, and I have none. So it's a good combination. We bring a lot to the table combined, is what I'm saying. <laughs> we have two laymen. <laughs> um, and and Matt's going to chime in with any questions he has as well. But I've uh, we've, we're going to go here from the top, Mick. What are the different types of law? Oh, man. Um, different types of law. There are many, many types of law. I think the easiest way to break it down would be, um, and this actually may be something that we talk about again a bit later, but um, they're civil and criminal. If we really look at the biggest buckets, criminal is there are you know laws that if you break them, you are um, criminally liable, which really the easiest way to, de- to determine what that is, is that the state says you have some debt to pay to society as a result of your bad actions. Um, And oftentimes, you know, criminal, especially when you get to felony level, not misdemeanor level, it results in jail time and, you know, the removal of certain of your rights as a result of your bad actions. Civil is really just anything where it's non-government actors for the most part, for the most part. There are some places where government entities are part of a civil case as well, but really civil matters are between people or businesses. Um, and within civil law, there are a whole bunch of different areas. You have business law, which is primarily what I practice, um, which is the law that governs and, and um, is utilized by businesses. Um, you have estate planning, um, which is another area that my firm focuses on, which is kind of passing along or the, the, the mechanism by which you can pass along your assets to future generations and how to uh, strategically minimize the amount of taxes that you pay. You're not allowed to use the word like tax avoidance. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, yes. And then there's family law, which is you know disputes over family matters, divorce, um, paternity matters, um, all kinds of things that fall under there. Um, there's I- patent and IP law, okay. um, which is basically you create some sort of, this is really what we talked about in our initial conversation, uh, was copyrights and trademarks and that sort of thing, which is oh, that's right. when you create something of value, you should have a protected interest in that thing of value. Um, you know, suppose I create a great recipe and I want to be able to be the one who, you know, derives benefit from it. I can, you know patent that recipe uh, and, and or, patent law IP or the words and, sorry ta- taco tuesday which i lo- re- recently learned are mr james yeah um terrible <laughs> basketball player like myself um, and sorry, anyhow <laughs> um yeah so you can you can secure your right or your ability to receive benefit from your ideas by patenting or trademarking or copywriting that um so those are kind of the the big buckets of law that everybody thinks of. There's also things like environmental law, um, which you know relates to uh, the environment of all things. Um, huh. There's anything. Well, here's here's the way I should put it. 
I could go on with this list all night because anything you can think of, there is a law related to it. Entertainment, um, aviation, water rights, uh, you know, anything you look around and think, man, there's a thing. I I look around my room and I see a rock. Yeah, there's geology law related to the mineral rights, uh, all those things. So um, there are too many types of law to, to even describe, but those are some of the main high points. And do do lawyers specialize in each like little niche of law or are there are just like a bucket? So general practitioners are um, pliers of many trades, masters of none, and are generally pretty crappy at all, actually. Um, (laughs) So it's if you are if you're looking for a lawyer, um, you are best advised to go and find one who at least has a um, consistent presence in the area of law that you're looking at. Um, Now that doesn't have to be hyper-specific. My firm is kind of a general business practice firm. Um, So our clients aren't um, heavily focused in any particular industry, um, but across kind of all areas of business law, there are some commonalities. Whereas if you come to me and say, Mick, I'm getting divorced, help me you're barking up the wrong tree right exactly so i so you probably wouldn't go to like uh matlock for example when trying to get some business law help <laughs> probably wouldn't be a good idea <laughs> i asked i turned to him for all of my law questions uh, <laughs> did, didn't he die <laughs> but whatever probably. um <laughs> okay, one question before we move on, though, because when you were you were talking about passing on assets, and it, it sparked a thought I'd had in the past that I'd always wanted to ask a lawyer, when you die and you have debt, does that pass on? So, uh, in some instances it can, and in some instances it does not. Um, the easiest way to avoid debt attaching to your assets at your passing is going to be by having a trust in place. If you have a trust in place, you basically assign that the second that you pass away, your trust, a revocable living trust becomes irrevocable, meaning that during your life, revocable, if you say, hey, I've transferred all my assets to a trust, um, but it's revocable, you can revoke that trust and they're still your assets. Whereas as soon as you pass, the trust agreement becomes irrevocable, meaning that they are the assets are then assigned to that trust. And so no creditors could come after you for debt or could come after your estate for debt as long as the assets are in the trust. The only exception to that is that um, if your debt is attached to property, like if you have a mortgage, that mortgage isn't personal debt per se. It's not secured just by your personal word, but it's also secured by certain pieces of property, like a a deed of trust on a, a piece of land. And so debt that is tied to property, uh, kind of in rem debt versus in personam debt. There's some terrible um, Latin for you. The worst things lawyers do, that's on the list. Um, Anyhow, the debt that is attached to property will still be attached to that property after your passing. So it's not like you can have your mortgage wiped out and your kids get your house free and clear just because you die. (laughs) But if you pass without a trust, then all of your assets have to go through probate and probate is an opportunity for creditors to say, hey, I have a right to some of those assets. So having mm-hmm. a trust, if you have any meaningful amount of assets, frankly, even at the couple hundred thousand dollars level, uh, having a trust is beneficial because it makes sure those assets pass without creditors being able to attach themselves to it. Huh, interesting. Okay. And that's that seems like it would straddle the line between like law work and also financial, like so, um, right? A trust seems like it would. Yeah, there's both. Uh, as far as how trusts are structured, um, some of it's quite basic, um, but others of it, there other um, matters. Yeah, there's a lot of both tax considerations. Um, in, in any estate plan, there are some tax considerations how to pass things without um, bumping up against gift tax or up against uh, inheritance tax or death tax. Everyone, I consider that. So there are considerations like that. There are also. Um, considerations. We work with a lot of financial planners. That's a lot. That's where a lot of folks tra- that get us engaged is through financial planners. Um, mm-hmm. As far as the estate planning thing goes, because financial planners have a good vision of how they want your assets to flow, and then they get with us and we put together the plan that makes that happen. 
Okay, cool. Thank you. That was something uh, personally <laughs> might affect me in the not too distant future. Hey, Carl, not that I'm planning on trust, time. buddy. <laughs> I should have one. Um, okay, let's move back to the preset uh, questions. Um, do law concepts transcend the type of lawyer? So we talked about the different buckets, the different varieties of law. You said there's someone like there are general practitioners, but they kind of aren't good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, listen. And we just lost all town, of our sponsorships uh, from every general practitioner out there. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm getting a bunch of hate right now. Down <laughs> votes if we're on Reddit or what have you. Right. Um, no, listen. In small towns uh, like where I grew up, you'll have general practitioners who handle family law, contract law, everything. Um, and that's fine, but the types of matters they're dealing with typically aren't terribly complex. Um, and so there's not a need for a lot of hyper-specialization, but um, there are concepts that transcend the type of law or the, or the lawyer that we're talking about. Um, the, same, the same principles of law apply, but if you're, if the question is, okay, do the same principles apply to a family law attorney as apply to a business attorney, they're just entirely different bodies of law, right? So yeah, some basic elementary ideas still apply and the rules of civil procedure, which is the, which are the rules you have to deal with as far as practicing in court go. Yeah, they're often very similar, but, um, no, that really the, the answer is kind of no to that question. Um, okay. Now, if the question is within business law, if I am a general contractor who builds houses, um, are there common principles of law as, you know, some of my other clients who are, um, you know, corporate finance um, and clients who are health tech startups? Yeah, there are very common themes that run through all those. The, the concepts of contract, um, bargain, exchange, liability, all those things are, are common themes. And so it makes it easy for somebody like me who practices kind of general business law to have clients in a variety of industries um, and with varied uh, concerns because the laws are all fairly common. And so if you can figure out the issue in one area, you're going to be able to figure out another as well. Okay, that makes sense. That's why, so you can essentially specialize in a bucket and the, the across that the bucket there there are are concepts that transcend the specific niche yeah right? that, that's okay. correct yeah so family law practitioners um you know there are common themes from divorce to um you know child rights and everything else right but those are it's kind of hard to take a family law practitioner and put them into patent law without them being quite confused <laughs> right you don't patent your children mick come on I pat them hard when they do naughty things. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, a couple definitions then for me, and these are probably like basic entry level things that you do at law school. But uh, you know, the, I never went to law school, um, th though I should. You're a better man for it, Carl. <laughs> I, Mick and I did live together actually at the time that Mick was preparing to go to law school. So some of this should have rubbed off, but it did not. It didn't. It did not, not, not a piece of it. So what, what is jurisprudence? Jurisprudence is just the study of laws um, and statutes. It's jurisprudence is really, so I, if I, <laughs> it sounds terrible. I have to think my, my degree is a doctorate in jurisprudence. So it's just the study of law. Okay. It's general. Nice. And, okay. Um, what is statutory law? So this is a cool question that actually has two answers. The main bodies of law are statutes and case law. So um, legislature, you know, we, we vote for our representatives, both at the state and federal letter levels, and they draft legislation and they, that legislation is laws once it's approved. Um, and those laws are statutory law. Basically, they make rules and they put them in writing and those laws become codified and we have to abide by those rules. So one area that you can find law is through the laws, you know, through, through the statutory written laws. The other area where law develops is through case law. So there's um, 
you know, every time that a judge makes a decision at the appellate level, not just your local court level, that's not really binding on anybody except for the case that's being heard. But at the appellate level, whenever a judge makes a ruling, that ruling kind of sets a precedent for all the matters in courts below it and, and, and within that court. So say you have an appeals court that within the state level, the highest, the highest appeals court is the Supreme Court of that particular state. So gets appealed to the highest level of that state. They say, you know what, the rule is that, you know, guys named Jim can't hit guys named Sam. And that's the rule. Now, all the courts below it, somebody named Jim comes and says, um, or Sam comes and says, hey, Jim hit me. They can look at it and they say, okay, well, while there isn't a law that's written out in statute, there is a law because a court above us said that this is the this is how they ruled on it. And so now guys named Jim can't hit guys named Sam. So you can look first to the statutes and then also to, um, to, to precedent case law. So that sounds like, okay, so statutory law seems like it would be very easy to like um, put in a single place, like index it and like be like, oh, these are the written laws. Case law sounds insane to me. Super messy. Right, um, like there are a lot of judges. <laughs> so this is, so the nice thing is that, um, for state law issues, you only look upstream from where you're at. So the the binding authority on a matter in Maricopa County, Arizona, is going to be within the appeals courts in Arizona and the superior and the Supreme Court of Arizona. So you're really just looking upstream from there. If you're in a federal matter, you look upstream. So say you have a federal matter in California, you look first at the appeals courts within California, the federal district courts. Then you look above that to the Ninth Circuit, and then you look to the Supreme Court. So it's if that helps because you really are just kind of looking at this pyramid of precedent, right? You're going upstream, but you are correct. It gets really tricky. And that's one of the things you get taught in law school is figuring out what precedent is binding on your particular circumstances. Um, and the job of a lawyer as far as drafting um, their pleadings and, and as far as arguing cases is making a convincing argument that the bad precedents that aren't favorable to their client are somehow excluded and so you're looking at these precedents that say oh you know guys that spelled jim gym rather than jim um, actually can hit other guys so you're gonna say well listen the initial precedent was about a guy named jim my guy's name is J G Y M. So my guy isn't actually subject to that rule. And look, here's another rule that says that um, guys who have names of sporting facilities can in fact hit guys named Sam. So you're, you're basically taking all the rules and laws that are there and explaining why they should or should not apply to your particular instance. Okay. I'm assuming this example is definitely based on actual literal real world occurrence. <laughs> I've got a sick mind, Matt. Uh, it sounds too <laughs> too well thought out to have just been uh, something on the fly here. Terribly thought out. It's on the fly. Very nice. Uh, okay. Yes. No. No hitting of Sam. Um, okay. What is an attorney versus a lawyer? Are those the same? So they're actually not. Um, Listen, everybody uses them interchangeably and that's fine. No lawyer or attorney is ever going to be offended by being called one or the other. We're um, a group who doesn't easily take offense because everybody hates us. So we don't have the right to be offended. <laughs> All um, the lawyer jokes, you mean? <laughs> oh man, they're, they're endless. What do you call 15 lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? What? A good start. <laughs> a good start. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um so a lawyer is somebody who has completed the study of law so once you've graduated from law school you are considered a lawyer um, an attorney is somebody who has passed the um, legal profession entrance entrance exam being um, the state bar examination or federal bar or whichever bar you happen to be before somebody who's licensed to actually practice law so lawyer is a guy who has studied the law um, attorney is in most instances, a lawyer who then also has passed the certificate certification requirements to be licensed to practice. Um, okay. And then Esquire, well, that, which is the little ESQ that you put after the name, 
denounces that you are in fact a licensed attorney. Um, so there, there are a lot of situations where you'll see somebody write their name and then call a JD afterwards, or even call themselves a lawyer. That's fine. Um, but it typically will mean that they haven't, they're not licensed to practice in whatever jurisdiction you're dealing with. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, that, so what you just said, led me right to the next question that I've always wondered about. So the bar, not talking about like a place where you go get a drink, but the bar as in yeah, when you, when you, <laughs> as in, what is it? I have no idea. Like, is it a certi like it's not a certificate because then you talk about getting disbarred, whatever that means. And then like, it almost sounds like it's a group of, you know, men and women that sit around like scheming on how to make uh, new laws. Um, I, what is the bar? So the bar does not make laws. Um, the bar is the uh, sanctioning or regulating body. Um, for attorneys. So there's this the state bar of the state of Arizona. Um, each state has its own bar association um, or, or bar. And it is basically the regulating body for those attorneys in that state. So um, it actually began within courtrooms conventionally. Um, this is from what I've read. Um, it could be a lie, but it wasn't on Facebook. So I think it might be more <laughs> true than not. Um, okay. But there, there actually is still, if you go into a courtroom, um, there's the seating section for the, the crowd, the spectators, and then there is a divide, uh, a small half wall, um, usually with uh, some, you know, double door opening that you go through, and that's considered the bar, and you can't cross that threshold unless you're an attorney or unless you're um, being, rep you know, representing yourself in a case, and so conventionally, that was kind of considered the bar. It was exclusive. You, if you were in front of that, you were you know, trying a matter before the court. Um, so that's where the term came from initially was crossing the bar. Um, and then it just kind of evolved into um, into what it is this now. intimidating term that everybody says, you know, now right. amongst attorneys, it's like, oh man, I got a call from the state bar and it means that you're in trouble or that you've, you know, had a complaint filed against you. So it is, it's the governing body for attorneys. Um, and there are bars at the state level, there's federal bar, um, but yeah, that's what it is. So you said there's ones at the state and the federal level. Do you have so when I part of the process of becoming a lawyer, like a, a licensed lawyer, is passing the bar exam, right? Correct. It, is that only for a state? Does when you pass it, do you you also is there a separate one for the a federal? So not bar? a separate test for the federal necessarily, um, but you do have to apply to be licensed before you're back to be, apply to be. Uh, allowed to appear before federal courts. Um, and so when you ask, you know, in what jurisdictions are you barred? Uh, you know, you'll say the state jurisdictions, you'll say Arizona, California, Washington, and then you'll also talk about what federal jurisdictions you're licensed to practice in. Federal district in Arizona, um, you know, the appellate courts of Arizona and um, that sort of thing. So that's uh, the bar or where you're barred means which um, jurisdictions you're able to practice in. Okay. And I would imagine then, so when you, when you take the bar exam, um, that's why you're like, you are licensed in Arizona, the laws in the state of Arizona are, are different enough that if you came to California, that's why you would also need to pass a bar exam in California or. So yes, to some extent, the biggest differences in laws are really the rules of the rules of civil procedure and the rules of practice before the courts of those different states. So I have clients throughout the United States um, that are businesses and I'm able to, to offer, you know, legal advice and, and um, you know, draft and review documents for them kind of in most jurisdictions, but where, you know, I need to get somebody involved um, who who is licensed in that state is typically when matters go before the court, that's where you really need to have, um, licensure in that state or in that jurisdiction. Okay. So I have clients, we just finished a transaction where my clients were a business based in, um, in Oregon. Uh, They're being acquired by a um, fund based out of Chicago and all the new entities were going to be in Delaware and jurisdiction for the whole transaction was Delaware and New York. So you can imagine there's a whole bunch going on there, but 
we all kind of, you know, know there's common commonality amongst most of the laws and transactions are very similar wherever you happen to be. And so, yeah, you go for it. And if you need, if you need certain issues resolved, you can find somebody in that state who specializes in that, but um, doesn't okay. happen that often. Yeah, that's how I was because you do, you know, your your law firm does business law, right? That's um, and but businesses aren't. I mean, of course, there are mom and pop shops around that are just in particular state, but a lot of, you know, businesses, obviously larger businesses that would obviously would want your services are going to be multi-state, even international. Um, and so in that case, you have to either have a large network of lawyers or um, I mean, how does that work? So it's a bit of both. Um, like I said, to some extent, you don't need licensure in each of those states where you might do, you know, a modern amount of business. But um, I do have attorneys in most states where I most commonly have clients. And so I, in the instance that I have somebody who is in New York, I've got a firm that I use in New York as local counsel for me and who can kind of vet um, major issues of concern that need a more local um, take on them. Okay. And then you cool. talked about international and yeah, international oh, yeah. laws a whole different um, bag of tricks. There are international law firms um, and really it's a bit convoluted uh, figuring out imagine. which jurisdiction actually applies, what law applies, all those things. It's not much fun. And that's why most international law is handled by really massive firms that have locations in each of those countries. Um, I have done a bit, um, you know, I have a, a client that's a bank in Peru um, that does lending here in the United States. And so, you know, we do some um, interjurisdictional work like that. Um, I have some clients wow. that, um, you know, have offshore banking for, uh, for tax, um, Optimization, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we do do some things like that, but complex major international matters uh, are best handled by firms that have many attorneys in each of the jurisdictions. Um, right. And so they all end up in a boardroom together, charging the one client for the 10 attorneys who are in the room at, you know, $1,500 an hour per attorney. The bills get really, really big. And so if you have a complex international issue, you better be ready to have a complex international bank account. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, you're on a podcast called Learn It From a Layman. Not a lot of complex international businesses. Um, <laughs> so in, in that vein, like what you've already told us about like a trust, right? That's something that I think the layman probably should know about. Yeah. Are there other like little tips that you have as far as like, this is what the layman needs to know about setting up their their legal matters. Sure. Um, the primary things that I would say first is if you are starting a business, especially if you're going to have partners of any sort, if it's not just you going to business, you should consult with an attorney and have an operating agreement drafted. This could be as simple as you're starting you know, uh, uh, lemonade stand that is a little bigger than what your kids would have. And you have a couple partners and you're each putting in a thousand bucks immediately. You should address, you know, an operating agreement is going to determine what's everybody's right. What, what are everybody's rights? Um, and also what are the obligations when you break up? Um, you, you should go into every business relationship, assuming there's going to be a breakup at some point, some sort of divorce. And so by planning, at the outset, what the mechanism is for getting everybody out of it in a happy manner, you're going to preserve relationships and you're going to save a ton of money and legal fees fighting over who gets what in that scenario. Um, second thing I would say is lawyers, some of the stereotypes are accurate. Um, <laughs> and so find a lawyer that you trust that's a it's a genuine human being and try to make sure that there's somebody who's not just going to look for how to 
bill the most hours in any given situation, rather yeah. somebody who's going to look at it and say, this is the wisest outcome for you. Um, you know, I try to talk to my clients about the fact that it's my job to a give them what the legal um, outcome of any situation would be, but then also to talk to them about what the wise business decision is, because just because I think we can litigate a matter and go to trial and win doesn't mean I think that we should. And there are going to be a lot of attorneys who you come to them and say, Hey, Mick, I've got this issue. Um, you know, what do you think? Is it a winner? And uh, less than ethical attorneys want to say, yep, it's a winner. Let's file suit and let's go. And they're going to bankrupt you in legal fees. Whereas there, I would say, frankly, probably half of the folks who come to me with litigation matters and say, Mick, I want to file a suit. I want to go down this, this avenue. I say, you know what? I think that we shouldn't be looking at trying to get a judgment in your favor that might be worth the paper that it's written on if you can't collect on it or enforce it. And instead, we should be looking at how do we make this problem resolve in a way that might not get you quite the stroke of ego that you are looking for, but that does in fact resolve the problem and does so in a way that's not going to cause you to end up in the poorhouse. Right. Yeah. So well, that, that's a really big piece of advice boiled down to make sure that your attorney is giving you sound, not just legal, but also um, insightful, holistic advice. It's interesting because I it's almost like you need to get to know the lawyer outside of the law profession to know whether or not they're like a stand up human being, <laughs> because I mean, if I knew you as a lawyer, um, well, I do now, but, um, you know, I, I don't know how I would be able to tell the difference between a Mick and a, um, someone that is going to just, you know, pull the wool over my eyes, you know, Saul Goodman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are different, um, I don't know, Mick, maybe you can speak to some of the ones that are most trustworthy, seeing as how you're definitely trustworthy yourself. But there are a number of like review sites available that people can take advantage of. I mean, everything from Google to Yelp to actual law-focused review sites. Any thoughts on if any of those would be useful? Yeah. Um, so much like the Better Business Bureau, <laughs> uh, they're of mixed value. One of the issues that you run into with all of them, and I'm on the other side of this equation from you guys is I know how those sites work. Now, if you go on to, I'm trying to think of what the AVO is, one of the big ones, AVO, A-V-V-O, um, they, you can go on there, you can see how is this lawyer rated? And I think that my rating on it is like a 9.5 or something like that. I have a very high rating. Now that's unique because they reach out to you. I get probably 15 calls a, a week from different agencies, different groups, different websites, that all rank attorneys and do all these things. And they're all like, well, you should get your profile set up with us. Um, one of the upsides is, is you'll have a 10.0 rating. So just like Better Business Bureau, if you pay your dues, you get a good rating. Um, and they, there's also attorneys who actually do work hard and who have clean records and who do that and, and who have good ratings because of that. But it's hard to really be able to rely on those resources because just by paying and keeping your, your nose relatively clean, you can avoid, you know, not having the a pristine rating. So um, I think that the way to go about it is the way to discern who you can rely upon and who you shouldn't is, this is maybe self-serving, um, but I really encourage if you are within a certain industry or you foresee certain issues in the future, um, listen, if you're going to an estate planning attorney, most of them aren't going to rip you off. The pricing is kind of is what it is. You're going to be between, you know, $2,000 and $4,000 to have your estate planning, you know, prepared. Uh, that's fine. But when you're talking about litigation or you're talking about business, if you can establish with a relationship with an attorney before a problem becomes significant, you're going to have a good idea of how they're going to handle that problem when, you know, a problem when it comes to a head. Um, I was talking about kind of preventative maintenance. If you are starting a business, have a relationship with an attorney, no matter how small the business is and how, no matter how small the relationship with the attorney is, because 
they're going to be able to provide you some insight. And if you have an attorney who only wants to bill you and isn't providing value, you're going to suss that out pretty quickly. So um, my recommendation on that is do what most people can't imagine doing and develop a relationship with, you know, the scum of society, your <laughs> local bar. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Play the long game is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Hold your nose and befriend the lawyer. <laughs> That's exactly right. Very nice. Okay. Couple, a couple more things to hit on. Oh, by the way, I, when you were talking about uh, getting some agreement in before, um, as you start a, a business, it's a good thing this podcast is not a business because Tim is a diva. Um, I mean, he already demands like his, uh, his like dressing room. I don't get dressed. Well, Tim called me before this, this, uh, <laughs> session and was telling me how he's already in makeup. And, uh, and Nick, I'd, I'd like to talk to you afterwards about what legal action I can take against these guys. Because I really feel like I have some grievances. <laughs> You're getting ripped off. I'm, I'm worth so much to this group. You have no idea. I'm here for you, buddy. All right. Nice. It's a good thing I already have an established relationship with you. That's I've been waiting to get my, uh, my pound of flesh from Carl, so we're good. <laughs> yeah. I'm your in. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I think I think Mick would probably have a few things he could hold over my head, but vice versa, Mick. So oh, you can play that guy. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So class action suits. That's something that the layman is familiar with. I actually got one in the mail recently about like if you want to get a piece of this action, like um, what what is a class action suit? How do they start? And how come I get involved if I don't feel like I ever had anything to do with them? So a class action lawsuit, um, most lawsuits are going to have a single plaintiff, a uh, single aggressor, the, the person filing the lawsuit seeking damages against the defendants. You have plaintiff, which is the one who files the suit and defendant, the one who is defending the lawsuit. Typically, you're going to have a single plaintiff um, and either a single or numerous defendants. A class action lawsuit is where there are numerous people with a very similar type of injury or damage. And so in order to kind of efficientize the process um, and to be able to pool resources, you can file rather than as an individual, you can file as a class of plaintiffs. So you have a class action. Class of plaintiffs being more than one plaintiff, so more than one person on the top part of that equation um, pursuing damages of a similar type against uh, common defendant or defendants. Um, in order to certify as a class, you have to be able to establish that you're, that the fact pattern for each of those types of damages are similar. If you think back to, and I'm trying to think of what the movie was, an old John Grisham book turned into a movie. I think it was maybe the Rain Man or Rain Make, not Rain Man. I like that movie too. Rain Man <laughs> reminds me of Carl. Just kidding. <laughs> kind of. Um, no. <laughs> I need to take Carl to Vegas is what I need to do. Um, no, uh, class action. Um, sorry, the, the movie, the John Grisham book, um, they're going around trying to get a lawsuit against a tobacco company. And so you can imagine all the people suffering from, uh, you know, damage from tobacco, from smoking tobacco, from improper warnings and all those things, they would have a very common type of damage as a result of them all having been victims of the same scenario. They all smoked. They didn't know the smoke was going to cause damage. There wasn't proper warning given. They were subject to predatory marketing. And so they can all say, we should all be in the same group going against Marlboro, right? Um, and so when that happens, then a single, there's a class representative um, or kind of the lead plaintiff. And that lead plaintiff is really the one who ends up hiring the attorney to represent the class. They're the ones who most directly consult with the attorney, um, but they're representing a group of people. And ultimately, if there's a settlement, they're also the ones who approve or deny the settlement offer. Um, so in exchange for being that lead representative, oftentimes they get a larger portion of the um, damages that are awarded at court or, or also uh, the larger portion of the damages that are awarded in settlement. So you can imagine if there's 
you know, 1500 smokers all file all who want to file suit against Marlboro. And there's a lead representative, Mick, who, you know, is a longtime smoker, um, you know, has a mechanical lung. I would say, okay, well, I'm going to the class representative. You get everybody to sign off from the class that you're going to do that. You go through the litigation process. Oftentimes that lead representative is one who works most closely with the lawyer who takes the stand. Um, and the lawyer is going to try to put on a case that represents the whole class, probably using some anecdotal evidence from a few of the different people. Um, and then the judge oftentimes will say, okay, well, we're going to award damages or however the damages are awarded, whether it's through jury or judge, they're going to say the damages are in the amount of $15 million. There's, um, you know, a, let's say a thousand representatives. So everyone's going to get $15,000. And in the class, or 15,000, my math isn't there. That's why I bring Carl along. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, and then they're going to say, but the class representative, that lead plaintiff is going to get, you know, uh, three times the normal share. So that's what a class action lawsuit is, kind of the mechanism of it. Um, and you don't have to join a class. When you get an email, Carl saying, join a class against Facebook for the, you know, right. divulging, you know, uh, yep. private yep. information, all those things. The reason they're submitting that is they're trying to increase the size of the class pool so they can get a larger reward, make it look mm. like there are more victims, more interested parties. Um, and there's also some obligation to notify people who might, you know, if they can identify what that class looks like, there's also an obligation to let them know, hey, we're litigating a case that you might, you know, intend to litigate yourself. And so you should get in on this if you want to. You're not required to, but it's a little harder to win that lawsuit on your own rather than as part of the class. Interesting. Okay. Now, and you said that it'll be like a lead plaintiff who uh, interfaces with the lawyer more. Is that plaintiff also the one paying the lawyer lawyer's bills? So they are, but oftentimes the class is set up in such a way that um, the fees are uh, collected and then remitted through that lead plaintiff to the attorney. So, um, you know, one of the nice things is you're trying to pool resources amongst common victims or common plaintiffs. And so you can say, okay, you know, if, if it's not a contingency matter, there's two different ways the lawyers really getting paid on, on lawsuits. It's either, you know, as, by their hourly rate, um, which, you know, is they just get paid as you go along, you submit a monthly invoice and they get paid on it or there's contingency, which is if I win, then I get a portion of the winnings. Um, and so, you know, in a $50 million case, you get 30% of it, the lawyer's looking at a nice payday. In that instance, having a class is a lot easier to do because the class probably isn't going to go bankrupt paying those legal fees. But if you have a weak case that, you know, no lawyer wants to take on contingency and they're taking on an hourly rate, then yeah, the class representative view on paying the bills, but generally they're collecting fees from the other plaintiffs uh, from the rest of the class and, and paying them in that way. Okay. How often are, are, you know, do lawyers work on contingencies? Like, uh, seems like that would be a dicey way to kind of run a business is if I win, I'll get money versus like, this is my rate and I'll do my best. <laughs> um, the frequency with which attorneys get paid on contingency is the frequency with which cases are good. Um, that's really what it comes down to. No lawyer is going to take on contingency a case they don't think they can win. Um, yeah. And it's really just kind of a factoring slash gambling scenario where, um, you know, I, I worked for a firm early on in my career that did debt collection. They did a, you know, judgment. They, they pursued um, commercial business defendants who owed money to, you know, major construction supply companies and whatnot. And it was just a numbers game for them. If they had, you know, 3000 matters, all that went to judgment, sure. They weren't getting paid until, you know, they collected, but on 3000 matters, they're going to get paid on 1500 of them. And that was worthwhile because it was kind of a, uh, I don't want to use the word term sweatshop, but is there's a lot of volume that went through. And so um, it's a, it's a numbers game. Taking contingency matters. If you have very few cases is probably not a sound business model. Right. I, it has to also be kind of dependent on the, maybe even the, um, the type of law. Like if I'm, out there ambulance chasing if i'm an accident uh yeah. like 
the people that I'm that I'm uh, representing aren't going to be able to pay me, you know, my my normal legal fees. So I have to get them from, you know, whatever. Right. Personal injury attorneys are uh, most of them operate on a contingency basis. Um, and you'd be shocked when you go into some of the bigger personal injury firms. Um, they'll take almost any case because they're going to send an initial demand letter to insurance and if they if the case is weak they're just going to say okay you need to accept the terms that were you know offered by insurance no matter how bad they are because they're not going to invest time in a matter that doesn't you know pay much but if they have three big cases that are going to get them you know a contingency fee of a million bucks a piece and then they have 500 small cases they're going to pay a thousand bucks a piece at the end of the day that thousand bucks a piece on the small cases is still revenue for them and so they are going to kind of do a lot of churn and burn on those type of claims. Hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Okay. Um, let's see. You've had a few of these as we've moved along, but uh, so judges, it's unclear to me uh, because most things are unclear to me uh, what path you go from a lawyer to a judge or is that always the way it goes are judges um is that like a track in law school how does that work yeah so man i'm trying to remember what they told us in law school i think it was a's become academics b's become judges and c's become practitioners who make all the money um <laughs> <laughs> that's really kind of how it goes if you um, and maybe I have the top two reversed, but I don't think I do. Um, a lot of times judges are, you know, they, they, in most instances, it's required for most types of judge positions. It is required that you do, in fact, have a law degree. Um, and in most instances, I believe you're required to be barred, but I don't know if that's actually a requirement for all judges. So most judges are. Now, I will say that some lower courts, like Arizona has uh, small claims, which is, you know, any Joe Schmo can be an officer of small claims court. Um, but then you have justice court, which is claims under $10,000. Attorneys can still practice there. They're an elected position. You have justice of the peace is the position and they are a judge. You know, they can, you have jury trials and everything at the justice court level. And most JPs, most justice of the peace in Arizona are not educated, legally educated or licensed. I think there's maybe one in Maricopa County out of probably 20 JPs that are in fact, um, that it, that one is in fact a licensed attorney. So in some instances, you'll have a, a judges who are not attorneys, but at the superior court and up level, uh, most are either attorneys who practiced and ended up, you know, deciding to go down that path or they're, you know, folks who took a different path and uh, maybe they were law clerks for some time and then ran for office to become a judge. I have a friend who, um, you know, five years ago, so when we were five years into practice, decided to run for Superior Court judge in Milwaukee and um, end up getting elected. And, you know, that's her career path now. So, um, Nick, Can I ask, why are so many justices of the peace not educated in law? And how, is that bad or how bad is that? Or is it not a big deal? You know, as an attorney, it can be frustrating. Um, a lot of them are, you know, very diligent about their jobs. Um, you know, they try to get up to speed. But I'll be honest, the education that's offered to a newly elected JP is very limited. And so a lot of the burden is on the jet, on that justice piece to educate themselves. And you end up in some jurisdictions where the JP doesn't know the law. Um, I actually was at a, a trial, um, one of the very few civil jury trials at justice court level. My client's an air conditioning contractor, um, owns a nice regional business, and he was sued by, my client's business was sued by um, an unhappy customer. My client had done all that they could, and that unhappy customer um, obtain some discount or free legal services. I'm not sure what the scenario exactly was, but the attorney also is clearly inexperienced 
and demanded a jury trial at the justice court level. And it was that the process ended up being me having to educate the, the justice of the peace on how a jury trial needed to, needed to be run. Um, there were so many things where the, the JP, you know, the opposing counsel would say, oh, this needs to happen. And I had to go back into the rules of civil, civil procedure for the justice courts and say, no, that's actually not. That evidence needs to be excluded. And the jury can't be here while we're talking about the exclusion of that evidence because it violates, you know, the, so it, it can be a real disadvantage in some instances, Tim, to have a judge who does not understand the practice of law well or does not understand litigation well. But the reason for it, I think, is they're trying to keep those justice courts um, a little more informal um, and a little more, little more um, litigant friendly. And so they kind of feel like, well, let's just allow you know, a, a normal person to be in there doing it. Um, unfortunately, now there are so many cases at the justice court level that the informality, there, there's a very complex set of um, rules and everything else. So it, it's, a, it's a give and take. <laughs> Do you think it's a problem that, that judges are elected? <laughs> I don't know that I'm allowed to speak on this issue. <laughs> um, yeah, no kidding. You know, it's a it's an interesting thing. It really is. Elected judges, there's the potential for some real conflicts there. Um, I know a lot of judges who are outstanding people and who are who have impeccable um, ethics. And I know others who maybe aren't so squeaky clean and you end up feeling like, man, there's a vested interest in what's going to happen here. Um, but there are so many judges. You got to remember at the superior court level in Arizona, I think there's, there's probably, man, there might be 200 judges. Um, and so if you think about how many judges that is and, and the ability to actually appoint all those judges um, and the differing intervals of time that they serve, I think that it becomes impracticable to have that many judges appointed. And so I think that while it's not real tidy to have them elected, it's kind of where we end up at. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I know personally, when the judges are on the ballot, I, I never know anything about them. You have no idea. Yeah, Absolutely I don't. Absolutely none, yeah. <laughs> so the only way that you get elected is someone just filling out random ballots and or right or 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 you have some type of network that's doing something for you right like um it's pretty painful man even samantha and i in the most recent election um you know we went down the list of judges and we just didn't fill in most of them i i filled in the ones right. that i knew were either good or bad and beyond that I mean, I think there was, I can't remember the exact number. There's probably 30 plus judges on the most recent ballot. And I knew five or six of them and four were good, two were bad. And that was all we checked because who knows? Right. And so maybe that's part of the good of it is that you end up with this random smattering of judges <laughs> who may be great, maybe not. And hopefully, you know, we didn't accidentally bubble the wrong one. So, right. I think that's a good description of the outcomes of, democracy more often than not a random <laughs> mattering <laughs> sometimes i wish it was a bit more random than it is very yeah, <laughs> uh, mixed outcome okay um how often do you work with a judge mick like in in your day-to-day -day, you know legal work is, is most of it outside of the the you know the actual um court process or what so this really depends on the type of law that you're practicing. Um, one of the attorneys that works with me, his name is Sam. Um, Sam has had a very litigation heavy um, practice recently. And so he was dealing with judges. I mean, the best example I can think of, actually a good friend of mine, Aaron Coleman, he has a landlord, he represents landlords in eviction actions. He deals with judges probably five or six cases every day. I mean, I'm not kidding. He and I have been on the golf course and he's doing a trial um, because that's, you know, that, that, that's the volume with which he's dealing with judges. So depending on the practice now, uh, 
transactional practice, like mine has become more recently in the last several years, you deal with no judges because everything is done between the parties to a transaction. You know, it's a lot of negotiation, a lot of contract back and forth. Um, but for me personally, um, I have a few cases that I'm litigating and I probably deal with a judge um, in, in, you know, differing manners once every couple of weeks. Okay. So, but, but obviously, in, in, like you said, for different lawyers, it would be very frequent. Family law practitioners deal with judges a ton. Criminal right. practitioners almost constantly because they're, you know, that, that's, that, that's, that's the doing. main right. arbiter of every claim they have. Right. Interesting. Okay. A um, couple more to round us off here. Uh, lawyers, are there limitations set on on lawyers or, or I, I'd assume judges as well about like serving in a jury? You know, I got called for jury duty um, first time ever about six months ago, and I just didn't respond. <laughs> Samantha teed up for me. It was in the middle of a big transaction. I had a $120 million acquisition going on, and I, she said, oh, hey, this came in the mail. You should probably respond to it, and I put it on my home desk, and, and nothing got like done. four months later, I saw it again. I was like, well, I guess that didn't happen. Um, so, no, there is... <laughs> There is no uh, rule against attorneys or judges, for that matter, uh, being on a jury. But when you're going through voir dire, which is the process of selecting a jury at a trial, a lot of times they're going to say, does anybody here practice law? Um, and you're the out. reason for this, yeah, I'm like, yeah, dismiss me right now. Um, the reason <laughs> right. for it is they don't want somebody to come into it. And they, frankly, they want it to be a, a jury of your peers, right? And your peers aren't knucklehead lawyers so yeah right right okay but i you know that's i i had thought that that it would be so clear-cut that that uh that you don't want a lawyer on like the at least the attorneys the actual lawyers in on the case wouldn't want lawyers on the the jury that maybe there was just a law about it like let's let's not waste everyone's time by bringing a lawyer in only to get kicked out um in the in this jury Yeah, what was that, Tim? Oh, I was responding. Uh, oh boy! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it. Um, ooh, ooh, Carl, learn yeah. learn it from a layman. Joins the jury. You could do like a <laughs> like a documentary style, like you know. Okay, I'm here in the the you know, the jury chamber. Pretty sure that's I can not say that is a documentary that would not be watched. <laughs> yeah, right. It's so gripping. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very uh, uh, low quality um, dialogue. Okay, um, what does on retainer mean? Like I've heard this talked about before, and I have no idea what it means. So, for certain of my clients, typically higher needs, bigger businesses, they pay me a monthly fee just so they can call me whenever they want. Um, and it's a retainer or, or so they can have some of my staff available for their legal needs whenever they need it. Um, and it's something that you just work out. You figure out what their needs are going to be. And you know, if you have a client that uses you 30 hours per month and your fees $330 an hour, you know, if that's the average, after some time you can say, okay, let's just do a flat $10,000 retainer per month and you can use us for as much as you need to. And that's what it is. Um, the other place where a retainer comes in is actually a deposit into your trust account and a client will give me, you know, I say, okay, listen, we're going to handle this transaction for you. It's probably going to cost $40,000 in legal fees. Um, I'll take a retainer up front of $10,000. I'll bill against that at my hourly rate. And then when that's ex you know exhausted, they'll have you refill that retainer. So being on retainer typically means you're paying kind of a flat fee to your attorney to have them available to whatever extent you kind of have agreed to in that retainer agreement. And the other version of it is that you just pay them so they have money on their account. So you, you know, are more or less entitled to have their time. Okay. So does that mean I need to have you on retainer? Like, or, or am I being billed hourly for this? <laughs> no, this is hourly. 
<laughs> I was hoping it was contingency. <laughs> the massive winnings that are going to come from this podcast. <laughs> we're, we're, we're planning on settling out of court. <laughs> I, want, I want equity is what I want, you guys. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. A percentage. Going to take a cut. All right. Um, good luck. I think so far this podcast has made almost, you know, a $50 bill, Nick, over the course. <laughs> hey, that is one small dinner for us together. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do uh, last question. Well, it's a, two, a double barrel though. So all you work with businesses. Um, does and you said that going into a business you should have a legal agreement set up so you're essentially saying all businesses essentially should have some type of legal services available to them and, and have and make use of those is that true and if so how do you like you're going to create a, a small business you're usually cash strapped um what what's your advice for for how to how to get legal services good legal services while maintaining a budget you know, there are firms like mine that um, that are aware of the uh, financial restrictions and limitations of small startup businesses. Um, and now listen, if your startup business is a lawn mowing business where you don't ever intend to expand beyond one mower and one truck and that sort of thing, well, first of all, there's not going to be a requirement of a lot of legal services. And so realistically, you can probably have your LLC set up, your operating agreement done, all of that. It's going to be quite simple. Maybe it costs you, you know, 700 bucks when it's all said and done. It's a one-time expense. You've, you've established the business relationship with the attorney in case you ever do get, do get sued or in case you ever have, you know, maybe somebody comes along and says, hey, I want to buy your your lawn mowing route. And, you know, I think it's worth a hundred thousand dollars now because you do all these lawns and you get evaluation, you got that process. And so at least then you have the relationship there in place. Um, but in other instances, I have um, one of my you know great clients is a health tech startup company. Um, they went through a few rounds of fundraising, um, you know, some seed capital and at the outset, yeah, the understanding is they're going to be a bit cash strapped. Um, and so we do a few different things where um, you can set it up where there can be deferred payment. Um, also, it's just kind of a matter of understanding that we're going to grow with the needs of the company. Um, I've got a couple instances where, you know, payment has been made and kind of uh, phantom equity in the business where, okay, upon a major cash realization, whether it's, you know, an additional round of funding or whatever, I'll get paid as an equity owner in the business, um, you know, that sort of thing. But a lot of these businesses, uh, it's the long game, Carl. It really is. It's something where, you know, I realized that, listen, as you know, there's three guys, you know, huddled in one office trying to get this business off the ground. It may not be a, you know, 30 or $40,000 a month engagement for me, but that depending upon the quality of the business, the business plan, all those things, there's an interest for me in, you know, maybe being more affordable now, knowing that the uh, growth of the business is going to ne necessitate and enable them to pay, you know, for much more extensive services in the future. Hmm. Makes sense. So once again, th that's the the flip of what you talked about before, as far as people investing in the long-term relationships with lawyers, so that you make sure you're going to get a good one. This is lawyers uh, investing long-term relationships with people that they think eventually will turn a profit and be able yeah. to give them good uh, good work. So, yeah, I, I have a lot of folks who come to me and say, okay, what's the price on this and this and this? And I tell them and they're like, oh, that actually seems, you know, pretty low. And kind of what I tell most of my clients at the outset of our relationship is I don't expect to make, I don't, I don't expect to be able to retire off you in this one transaction. I would rather treat you well and have you feel like you can trust the relationship that you're not getting an invoice for bill or for fees or services that you don't even understand what it is or why they cost as much as they did. I'd rather that we have a good relationship. And guess what? If I have a few hundred clients like you for the next 15 years, then I can probably retire based on that. But I don't want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not selling my soul for one transaction to get me paid quick and move on because my name is worth something. My firm's name is worth something. And so 
those extended relationships are, are really where the value is for me. Yes. Well, that seems like a good place to, at least, uh, to leave it. So once again, Focus Law, right? Yeah, if website. you want to, uh, website is focus, P-H-O-C-U-S, law.biz, B-I-Z. Um, you can always reach me at Mick, M-I-C-K, at focuscompanies.com. Um, and we actually are on Instagram and Twitter, or no, not Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Um, if you just search for Focus Law, you'll see us on there, uh, especially on the social media, self-interested, but I think they're worthwhile follows because we do put out some content that is um, informational and valuable to, you know, we we try to make it as layman friendly as possible. And I think that, you know, we explain some concepts that are important um, and we do it in a way that hopefully you can understand it fairly well. And and aside, but though I think you also do this for part of your your company, right? For your your firm, you are a uh, avid classic car guy, and I think you do a car show, don't you? For part of we your do. firm, yeah, we do so a charity car show. Um, we do it each year, kind of in the first quarter, um, generally in you know January, February, maybe March. Um, and yeah, we've got man. This last year, we had a great turnout. We had um, you know some cars from the show street outlaws which is you know discovery channel showed up we we do it for a charity this year we did it for devro behavioral health um, which is a, a nationwide organization um, they asked us to collect um, art supplies part of their therapy process uh, for these uh, young folks who you know are going through difficult times is um, the use of art in that therapy and it's really cool we got to go tour the facility right. anyways we gathered it was like 3500 pounds or something ridiculous of art supplies um wow. and an additional a couple thousand dollars that we were able to donate and really fun morning so yeah that's uh if you do follow us on those you'll see when that comes up and frankly it's yeah. a cool enough car show that it's even worth if you're not from you know arizona it's worth coming out for because it's a really fun event and i serve my um, homemade best in the world orange juice so <laughs> Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mick. Um, much appreciated. Good, uh, good legal insight here. I'll know how uh, when Tim tries to press charges for me not paying him, uh, I'll, I'll know you represent me. I, I had dibs. Tim, you find your own lawyer. <laughs> Whatever, Carl, I'm going to Zoom you. I've got a list of all the verbal flights and each one worth at least a thousand dollars of pain and suffering. <laughs> Guys, dibs is a legal, it's a legal concept. I remember calling dibs on young ladies back in the day and believing it was also enforceable. It's not, and they don't like it. So. <laughs> awesome. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Mick, Matt, Tim. Um, we'll be back again soon. I think we're going to have uh, another physics podcast in the not too distant future. Um, but thanks, Mick, and we will talk to you later. Thank you guys. See you. Thank you.